We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Christ is risen, my friends, and that's why we're here. Yes, to worship Him, the only begotten of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again from the grave. And uh, we are here today to commemorate that. And we are glad to be doing that. We had our 8.30 service this morning, and then we had a time of fellowship around the breakfast tables, and uh, it was a nice leisurely time, I thought. We enjoyed it very much, and here we are again this morning for our morning worship service. To those of you that are online as well, we welcome you, and thank you for taking the time out to participate with us. Uh, I don't know that you can see online, uh, maybe if uh, Jansen zooms out a little bit, he doesn't have to do that right now, but we have some Easter lilies here, both on my right hand and on my left, and uh, those, each of them, I think most of them have a card with them, and that card will say something like, this is in memory of or in honor of uh, a beloved family member, perhaps uh, some of them are in heaven already, and so... Uh, you have to come up after service and find the one that belongs to you, or ones, if you've got several of them, and uh, take them on home uh, with you, okay? So that will be for after the service, but we wanted to mention that. Also, there is a little half sheet, uh, I'll call it a handout, that's right in the back, straight back for me on the table there. There's not enough for everybody, but there are. there's on there a list of all of the uh, kind of in honor of or in memory of and who bought those uh, Easter lilies, in case you would like to have that and just enjoy uh, joining in the memory and honor of those uh, for whom these Easter lilies were purchased. And, and we'll be going home and, uh, and planting them in the flower garden or keeping them inside, I guess. I don't know if you can do that. But we planted ours several years ago outside, and they come up every year. They don't ever come up at Easter time, though. It's, it's too early, so uh, they come up later in the summer, and we're glad for that. So that's why those Easter lilies are here. We will be back, Lord willing, tonight at 6 o'clock for another uh, service, and we usually do spend some time reading uh, the scriptures that have to do with um, the Lord's uh, resurrection day later in the day, like in the evening. So Luke 24, John chapter 20 have some material in there. And I'm planning to speak in Matthew chapter 17 and continuing our series in Matthew because we've come to a point now of the transfiguration. And uh, what better uh, to think about the glory of Christ, how he is going to appear in the future uh, than to look at that passage. So that will be tonight at 6 o'clock in the will of God. You can see there are Wednesday activities, including dinner and a prayer meeting starting at 630 that's available by uh, telephone, phone in as well if you can't actually come to the building. I should mention also that in a week and a half, we plan to have Tom and Debbie Gibbons here. They will stay with us uh, at our home just that Wednesday night, and then they have to travel on to uh, 
parts north to a meeting in Canada, uh, but they're uh, able to come to Detroit for that meeting, and so they'll be here on the Wednesday night on the 27th, I believe that is. Is that right? Uh, maybe it's in here. I don't know. But anyway, um, you want to be here for that Wednesday night, if you at all can, to participate uh, with us. Yeah, there it is in the bulletin. Um, Men's Prayer Fellowship on Saturday, and our brother Darius will be hosting again. We're getting as much out of him, squeezing, getting all that we can before he leaves uh, and graduates here at the end of the month. So let's see what else. The Ladies' Spring Brunch is on Saturday, May 21st, and uh, Mrs. Wickard is coming to uh, minister to our ladies, and that will be a wonderful time as well. Be sure, well, is there a sign-up or anything for that yet? It's coming. Okay, all right. No sign-up yet, but just plan to sign up. That's what we can do. Um, Vacation Bible School is uh, listed there as well. That's uh, July 25 to 29. Really, it's not that far away. It's coming. (laughs) So a lot of preparation for that and are glad for uh, Jansen and Kaylee's work on that and, of course, Steve and Deb's work on that as well and looking forward to... uh, um, Mr. Jumble and uh, all those fun things that happen. (laughs) So, yeah, amen, somebody says. That's the best part, right? (laughs) Okay, so in any case, uh, I think that is it for the announcements. Unless did I forget something? Did I say everything I was supposed to say? All right, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you welcome us to come and worship you. It's not like It's not like Esther coming before the king, wondering if she will live. God, you have bid us to come. You have told us to come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because he has made the way so that we do not have to fear dying by coming before the king. And so, our God, we come before you in grateful worship. We thank you for your kindness, your mercy, your long-suffering, which has arranged for this plan of salvation that we know, which centers around Jesus Christ, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God in power by the Holy Spirit. And now, our God and Father, we come before you in his name, thanking you for his resurrection from the dead, which in turn guarantees the resurrection of every Christian from the dead to a life of eternal blessing. May we indeed enjoy this morning the worship of him who is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's take our hymnal. By the way, let me just say, if you are visiting here with us today, I am so glad that you are visiting with us. Please don't leave until you at least shake my hand or say hello to me. I want to meet you and uh, be encouraged by your presence. And uh, sister, it's very good to see you here again. You've come again. You just can't get enough of your sister. Is that right? (laughs) All right, very good, very good. And I see some visitors here. Thank you for coming. God bless you. Matthew 28, please. Matthew chapter 28, if you have a Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles that we'd like to share with you, uh, give to you after service if you haven't received one already. Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, 
there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. May God bless that reading of his word. That, my friends, is not a story. That is history. That is actual, factual, true truth. Indeed, amen. I'm going to invite uh, the instrumental ensemble to come uh, and prepare themselves for the offertory. And let's see, how shall we do this? I guess what we'll do is, while you guys are getting set up, we'll have the men come forward and we'll begin to take up the, the offering. Let me offer thanks, please. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your loving kindness to us and for the way that we can support the work that you are doing in the earth. You have privileged us to be able to be a part of that, sharing the good news that Christ has risen indeed from the grave and provides eternal salvation to all who come to him. Help us to do that faithfully until he returns. In Jesus' name, amen.
good. All right. Let them make their way out and uh, let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the certainty of a blessed resurrection for all who believe in Christ. We thank you for your kindness this week as you've given us good reports that we received, particularly later in the week of some who had some anxious hours earlier this week for Ian and for Christie's grandmother. Pray for Kevin's brother who's not well. Lord, I want to pray especially this morning as some of our youngest among us are here for perhaps their first Easter service, their first Resurrection Sunday, or maybe the first one that they might remember for little Matthew and Jade and we pray also for Travis, even though we don't see him here, and for Jacob and Chloe and Taylor, and for all of our older children as well. Lord, may they never forget the blessing of the special days of remembrance that we call every year for remembering our Lord's resurrection. And may they have in their minds the, the thought that the reason that we come even on every Sunday, every regular Sunday, we'll say, is because that's the day of the week on which the Lord rose from the dead. And so we commemorate it each and every Sunday, not just once a year. Father, we thank you for answered prayer in the last week for one of our sisters who had a challenge that she was facing. We pray, Lord, for those Christians who in Ukraine and, and their acquaintances are having a very dark and dreary uh, Resurrection Sunday in a sense, but I pray that the truth of what happened those years ago would buoy their spirits, would strengthen them and uplift them. We pray for that nation, Lord. We pray for peace. We pray, Lord, for all of our folks who uh, are working or studying in the secular environment to have wisdom, to know how to handle things that come up before them on a regular basis, give them the words to say, the illustrations to use, the, the arguments to prosecute, the uh, convictions and the assurance of the gospel to share with people around them. We pray, Lord, for those that are not well, who are facing serious treatments of chemo and radiation and the like. And Lord, for those who have long-term afflictions of their bodies and minds, which are not going away anytime soon or going away at all until they go to heaven. We commend them into your care. We thank you for each one who's visiting today, both online and in person. We pray that you will richly bless them and may the service that we have lift their spirits, their hearts, their eyes, their thoughts heavenward toward Jesus Christ our Savior. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to invite the children to come up now and uh, share their special music. We're looking forward to this. And then after them, we'll get reset up here with the microphones and all as we invite the uh, choir to come and share with us.
every day the wicked prosper. Good men suffer harm, failing seeks to gain the victory. Mocking Jesus' name, many Christians suffer so, and their tears of sorrow you all for your practice, preparation for that. That was incredible. Thank you so much for that ministry. Dan, thank you. It's great to see a full house here, as full as we can be, and we're very happy to see you all today and be able to share the Word of God with you, and uh, that's I will do that because the Word of God cannot be really improved upon, can it? And so we always have expositional preaching here in the church. But today the message is a little bit different, something that I've thought about doing both with this passage and also with the book of Hebrews. I haven't done it yet with Hebrews, but I, I will do it to you sometime, where I preach the chapter the whole chapter or the whole book, as it were, uh, in one setting. Today, 1 Corinthians 15, if you would please. Last year, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, we went through an eight-part series in this chapter. And what I'd like to do is treat that a little bit differently in a summary fashion to make sure we don't miss the uh, forest for the trees and see the whole thing together at one time. And what I've done is I've put in your notes the text of 1 Corinthians 15, and I have also put some additional comments to try to explain and connect it from the historical context up up into the present. So if you have a bulletin, you have the notes there. They're also available for you that are online as normal on the website, so you can find those as well. But I'd like to just uh, take us through chapter 15 and make some comments and uh, enjoy the reading of God's Word. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 1, Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel, I pause, and all the 
kind of sidebars there, or the, the, um, the illustration boxes, if you will, are, are my comments on the text. The rest of it is uh, outline material that I added and, and just the text itself. But in those boxes, you'll see my commentary. And, and the first one is this, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners such as ourselves, such as ourselves. He came to do the whole Christian message revolves around that central truth, that Christ came, lived, died for sinners, rose again from the dead. And that has to apply to some people. And I pray that it applies to every single person who is in this room and who is listening to us online, either now on April 17th or some date after this point. I pray that these words will come true to you, will be real to you and your heart. They are true. But whether you receive them or not is, is the question that we'll repeat a couple of times today. Now, you might ask, when he says uh, that the gospel which was preached, which you received, and in which you stand by, which also you are saved if you hold fast, what does that mean, to be saved? Well, it means to be rescued from the dreadful consequences of sin in this life and also after death. It means to be brought near to God instead of being far away from Him and separated from Him. It means to be forgiven, to be saved means to be justified, to be given spiritual life in His sight, and to be given light. Light. Many of you maybe remember the days, or maybe you're even in those days now when you realize, I have been walking in darkness. I've been walking in darkness. And you will find light the light of life in Christ Jesus, and you will be saved from that. You know, you know in your heart of hearts, when you're walking in darkness, you're nowhere near God, and you need Him. Because if you don't have Him, you will exit this life and be eternally separated from Him. And that will be real darkness. And you don't want that kind of darkness. The core of the gospel message then is this, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. How do we know that he rose again? Well, there are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ, verse 5 says, and that he was seen by Cephas, that is a a version of the name Peter, then by the twelve, after that, by the way, when it says the twelve, you're probably thinking, now wait a minute, twelve, what about Judas? Okay, twelve minus one, but then early on in the book of Acts, they added another fellow to their number, remember his name? Matthias, okay, and the qualifications was were included that he had to be with them from the baptism of Jesus forward and be a witness of the resurrection. So 12 minus 1 plus 1, there's 12, okay? So there's no contradiction there. Um, He was seen by the 12. And after that, it says, he was seen by over 500 brothers at one time, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, just pause for a second. I didn't put this comment in, but it to me to say it now. At this present was around 55 AD, 23 to 25 years after these events occurred. Paul is saying, like 
25 years ago this stuff happened, and some of the, many of these 500 people are still alive. You can go check with them if you want. It's kind of the idea. They did see him personally, but some, of course, out of a group of 500, you would have expect some in the last 25 years to have perished, to die, and they had indeed. Verse 7, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. How many eyewitnesses were there to Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead? Well, if you count, if, as I've counted, at least 14 people were just mentioned by name or, or whose names we know. When, we, when it says the 12, we can go look them up and we know what their names are. Okay, So we know exactly who those people are plus 500 more who are unnamed. We also know of two angels that were there at the tomb that knew he was alive, and probably the fact is all the angels knew that he was alive again, but those two. And several women who were first at the tomb in the morning, Peter and John, of course, also early in the morning, ran to the tomb to see if it indeed was empty. And of all these people, the 12, the 500, the all the ones that we've mentioned, eight of these men wrote histories or letters that are preserved in our New Testament. Eight of them. Eight men are responsible for the writing of the New Testament. Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, Paul, all of those guys, okay? James, Jude, all of them wrote. And and many of their letters and histories, gospels, they demonstrate at some point in those letters that they knew Christ was raised from the dead. Now, how many such eyewitness accounts, I'm talking about eyewitnesses now, who have written an account that is preserved for us today of other historical events that you believe? Take the, uh, just one that I thought of. I, we, should go, we could go through and spend a lot of time if we were history buffs and do this study. Maybe you are. Take the assassination of Julius Caesar, for example. I know of no written accounts by eyewitnesses. Zero. Now that's what I, when I looked that up, that's what I saw. Now, that's possible, it's possible I could have been misled and somebody knows of an eyewitness account. You go look it up and help me correct my notes if that's the case. But I know of none. At best, there are reports like that of Nicholas of Damascus, who wrote it down secondhand, purportedly from folks who were eyewitnesses. He was a Jewish historian who lived in 64, or was born in 64 BC and lived at least until 14 AD, which would make him 78 years old at that time. His account was probably written years after the events occurred. On this slim evidence, I bet you have never questioned that the death of Julius Caesar occurred in roughly the manner that you have heard with at two Brutus, with you also, and all of that that went around that and the senators that conspired to kill him and everything. Why would you disbelieve the news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ with eight writing eyewitnesses and 500 more which has far stronger historical evidence than almost any other events in ancient world history. 
Why would you not believe that, but you believe about Julius Caesar? I mean, if I pressed you as hard as, as atheists press us about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, if I pressed you that hard about the death of Julius Caesar, I could get you to doubt that Julius Caesar even existed because there's scant evidence compared to what we have here of all of these kinds of things. This is an amazing thing to me. This letter to the Corinthians was written approximately 25 years after the events occurred. Certainly no, and by eyewitness, an eyewitness, I might say, Paul the Apostle. Certainly, probably not much more or less than Nicholas of Damascus wrote about Julius Caesar. The truths, however, had been circulating by messenger all those years, way before the New Testament books were even written. The events happened within the lifetimes of many of the people reading the letter. They personally knew eyewitnesses and could verify the historicity of the events. For us, that would be like events that happened in 1997, Clinton's presidency. Does anybody doubt that? Red Wings win the Stanley Cup. You can't forget that after 42 years. The Pathfinder lands on Mars. That always fascinated me, those kinds of space exploration things. Steve Jobs returned to Apple. That was a real big event in computer uh, engineering uh, history, as it were, in my field. And, and so many other things. Does anybody question those things? I mean, only a few kooks out there, I'll say, question things like, you know, did we actually land on the moon? Or did the U.S. government cause 9-11 somehow or something like that? I mean, those kinds of misinformational things that people, some people believe. You, I mean, this is clear. This is obvious. And for you to say, well, look, we can't trust this because it's, you know, Christians put it together after all. You know, those people that, that don't like lying and, and are very careful about their body. We, we got to dismiss this. Now, now, now that we've dismissed this, now tell me about what evidence you have. Oh, come on. Don't be unreasonable, please. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Here you have a murderous critic of the faith coming to faith in Christ. Paul was persecuting the churches, taking people to jail, standing by, approving their death because they didn't follow his form of Judaism. And he turns to the faith that he once tried to destroy. This is like some famous modern critic of Christianity changing his mind and becoming a follower of Jesus. Think of some names that might fit here either who have already converted to Christ or who seem so far off that that's impossible. I mean, this would be like Dawkins bowing the knee to Christ, Christopher Hitchens, or some other famous atheist. For some, it's too late, even the one I mentioned. Does that give any credence to what we're talking about here? That was the Apostle Paul. Paul then turns to implications of denying resurrection doctrine generally and specifically with regard to Jesus. 
And he says in verse 12, Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, this is a very odd thing to me. He's saying there are some who are among you in the church who are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, there are some, I'm going to say this way, so-called Christians who talk like this today. They want to be academically respected. They want to be sophisticated. They want to be clever. They want to be able to say, well, I, I follow the science, and science tells us that no one can rise from the dead. So there is no resurrection of the dead. There's maybe uh, some other explanation of the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe he did not actually die. That's a common one. Maybe he rises mystically in the hearts of his followers. Or maybe it's just a plain old myth, Christian triumphalism, that the good guy finally won after he was killed. That's a sad testimony that people that call themselves Christians would say there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul says, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if that's the case, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. Yes, and we are found to be false witnesses of God. Because that is, he's saying we're liars. Because we're testifying of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, dead people do not rise, is what he means. If, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Sad state of affairs if there's no resurrection. In fact, the opposite of his supposition is true, which means that our Christian faith is meaningful. Our testimony is not a lie. It's, in fact, the truth. We are still not still wallowing in our sins. Can you imagine? Can you imagine knowing that you're a sinner and not having anything you could do about it? Or thinking, if I only can do enough to please the gods out there in your pagan idolatry, that I, could, that I could be okay with God. Can you imagine existing in that state? Knowing what you know now, that's a, that's a horrific thought because no one can earn their way into the favor of God. Because the opposite of, this, of that supposed argument is true that Paul's making, in fact, the resurrection is true, then the ones who have died already in Christ have not, in fact, perished eternally. Think of grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, siblings who have gone, who are believers. Okay, I can only give hope for those who are believers. There is none for those that are not believers. I want to make sure you understand that, okay? We're not talking about everybody gets to heaven because that's how all funerals are, you know. They're always good guys and good gals when you go to the funeral, no matter what they were at all. But you're not good if you reject Jesus, my friends. You're not good if you reject Jesus. That is not good. We do have the hope of eternal life 
a hope which is a living hope, a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And by the way, somebody was asking our brother here about the word hope yesterday, so I thought I would throw in a definition here at this point. Hope has two facets to it, two angles you can look at it from. First of all, the first, the, the, it's the thing or event that's promised by God. This is Christian hope now. This isn't worldly hope. Christian hope is the, the thing or event promised by God. For instance, the resurrection. We hope in the resurrection of the dead. Paul said that. You know, he said, I'm on trial in the later part of Acts because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. We have a hope that Christ will return. These are events promised by God. Okay, we have a hope that he will reign over the nation of Israel. He will right all the wrongs and injustices that occur today. He will recreate the heavens and the earth into a new heavens and a new earth, and, and we will dwell with him eternally in that eternal city, the new Jerusalem. Those are things that we hope for in the sense that they are things or events promised to occur by God. And because they're promised by God, who never overpromises, never underpromises, never can't keep his promises, knows all things and in in all the contingencies in the future, and has set all those things up the way that he wants to, to make them accomplish his promised things, we know that those things or events promised, they without fail, will come to pass. That's, that's the facet of the thing or event hoped for. The second facet or, or angle at which we look at the word hope is from our personal confidence in these, in these matters, a personal feeling of confidence. We look forward to something with good reason for confidence in the fulfillment of that thing or event because God promised it. So you see, hope is the thing and our personal feeling about that thing, and those two are tied together for the Christian. And so it's not a wish, it's not wishful thinking that we're talking about. Well, I, I, hope, I hope I'm raised from the dead. No, you will be, in a, if you're a Christian, you can have full confidence in that. So we speak of the hope of our own resurrection from the dead. And by the way, we also have a hope of the future judgment now, that sounds weird, I suppose you would say, because judgment always sounds bad to us. But, you know, if God, if you think about judgment in terms of God is going to judge all the evil that is going on in the world and has gone on for all eternity, and everyone is going to pay their fair share if they don't believe in Christ, they're going to, they're not, their sins are not forgiven, they're going to have to deal with God. Mano a mano. And... They're going to be judged. We have that hope of judgment because say we've been the victim of some oppression or some sin or some crime. It's not a very hopeful situation if you sit there and you say, man, the guy that did that to me is going to get off scot-free. He's never going to have to pay. He's never going to go to jail. He's never going to have to... We have the hope of judgment that God is going to make right all the wrongs in the universe. That is a good thing to those of us who believe in him. Now, the person who rejects Christianity, however, has an entirely different perspective. They, they hope that Paul's supposition of no resurrection is true. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then this person who rejects God feels free to live however he pleases. I suppose he would have 
the plan to extract the maximal pleasure or benefit that he could or profit out of the opportunities that life affords. He's trying to optimize his perhaps hedonism with the plan that once his life's candle runs out, he's done. He's got to maximize it while he can because he has nothing after that. That pleasure that he seeks or profit may be hedonism or maybe the good feeling of philanthropy or setting up the next generation of his family for a life of ease or wielding power over others or somehow achieving fame or some combination of the above perceived good things. Maybe he even includes some religion in his approach to life or to hedge his bets. But taking that approach to life only seems good because important data is missing from his thinking. You know, everything, everything seems well and good in your, you know, your little construction project or you know, it all, it all seems good when you've been so careful and you send up a, you know, a satellite that's going to land on Mars until you realize, oh, I did all the calculations in feet and inches and I was supposed to do it in meters. And the satellite crashes into the surface of the, of, of the planet. You know, everything seemed good. For months and months, it was traveling out there to that, to that, to that faraway planet and it was going to be a smashing success. It was a smashing success, all right. Because you forgot or missed or didn't have in your possession certain data points. If you don't have the data that Jesus arose from the grave and paid for your sins and you think you're going to go on living and everything's going to be a smashing success, if you ignore all of that, if you do not entrust your soul to Christ, at the end of your life you will crash through the guardrails and fly off the cliff into eternal condemnation and darkness. If you ignore the eyewitness data, you will make a very bad miscalculation. You won't be off by inches, you'll be off by miles. Missing key data yields very bad results. And so don't suppose that Christ is not risen from the dead. The historical evidence is clear and unarguable that he did rise from the dead. Oh, we, have, we haven't gone into all the apologetics and all the changed lives and all the transformation that occurred in the world and all of that sort of thing. We could do all of that. But we can't this morning, we can't do it all at once, but this should suffice. Any court of law would receive the testimony of 514 eyewitnesses as to an event's truth. It would be beyond a reasonable doubt. My friends, it is unreasonable to doubt the resurrection of Jesus. Christ has risen from the grave, and in fact, everyone else will too. Verse 20 says this, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. That's kind of an interesting statement, I think, in 21. Basically what it says is man messed it up, man has to fix it. There was only one man who could fix it, but he came and he did indeed fix it. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Please take note that all will be made alive. Even those who do not want to come back to life will 
Do you, you realize that? People who have snuffed out themselves, people who have died in hopelessness and said, I want nothing to do with God and I'm not going anywhere and I'm done and I'm an atheist and I hate God. I don't know how they can hate God who doesn't exist, but anyway. <laughs> um, even those people who think like that will be raised and they will be managed in a very orderly fashion. Look at verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, Afterward, those who belong to Christ at his coming, verse 24, then comes the end. So there's a third phase of resurrection there. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Okay, so here's an example where all doesn't mean all. What is that? All, all means everything except God the Father. God the Father doesn't submit himself to the rule of his son, but he's accepted from that. That's clear. Verse 28, now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And we're talking about the Son in terms of his humanity here. We're not talking about his divine logos, the second person of the Trinity. We're, we're saying he as the representative of all of mankind, the new Adam is going to come bring the, the, the kingdom that he's ruling over, he's going to rule over in the future. He's going to bring all of that to God and he's going to say, God, we have accomplished what you have assigned man to do. In Genesis 1, you said, have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the cattle of the ground. You, you, you are in charge of the whole thing. Well, Adam and Eve, they right, you know, right quick messed that up. And we've messed it up since then. But Christ has come to make redemption for sin, and he's going to come back again. And he's going to do exactly what that, that uh, divine mandate, that creation mandate was and said to do. And then he's going to give it all to God as a gift and say, we have accomplished what you have asked us to do. And he will submit everything to the Father. Even death will be subject to the ruling authority of Jesus Christ and God the Father. You know, you know a lot of people think death is like this, this ethereal power out there that nobody can get a hold of. Fact is, God has a good hold on it and Christ has defeated it and put it into its place and he will eventually subject it fully to himself. Now, if Paul goes on to say, if there is no resurrection, going back to that terrible supposition again, living the Christian faith is useless. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, this is probably the most confusing part of the chapter, but it's not that hard to untangle if you remember the rest of your scriptures. This refers to people who were first saved because of the testimony of someone who soon thereafter died. Think of an, think of a, a, an aged saint who witnesses to a grandchild or a neighbor, child, a neighbor boy or girl, and, and, and that boy or girl becomes a Christian under the testimony of that dear person. And then that person, here's this new Christian, 10, 12, 15, 20 years old and they observe their elderly neighbor or grandparent die. And then they go to the church and they say, I want to be baptized. Why in the world would they do that if they thought that their grandparent 
was dead and gone and never coming back again. That there was no heaven, there was no hell, there was just worms in the ground and that was it, done. Why would they go to be baptized in the church if they believed that the resurrection was not a thing? They wouldn't. If they believed their friend was eternally lost and there was no resurrection, they wouldn't be baptized. Now, I I know this argument isn't convincing to those out there in the general populace because they say, well, people do crazy religious things all the time. I agree. Certainly, they do. We've seen that many, many times. Based on falsehoods, they do. They teach and preach false things and do dumb things and all of that. But this objection doesn't work for Paul or the other apostles. If they knew that Jesus had not risen from the dead, why would they subject themselves to the things that they subjected themselves to? Knowing that, knowing that. And we're talking not about men who were hallucinating. We're talking about dozens and hundreds of men who saw the Lord Jesus Christ alive. Why would they suffer persecution willingly for something they did not see, did not believe, and knew to be false? They wouldn't. And so their followers, by extension, have the same kind of experience. Verse 30, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, I think that means false teachers, And what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's hedonism. Live for the moment, because once you're dead, you're gone, and you are no more. But that dogma is wrong, and it's dangerous to your moral and spiritual health. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Because you're going to be raised again from the dead, how you live life now matters. It matters because you're going to be judged, because you have to live with the Lord for all eternity. How how embarrassed do you want to be when he comes back? (laughs) We don't want to be embarrassed before him when he comes. We don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming, 1 John tells us, reminds us. For Christians, it is shameful to even contemplate a no-resurrection version of the faith, which is no version of the faith. It's a totally different ball game altogether. Christ is raised and Christianity is true, or he's not raised and Christianity is false. End of story. That's it. Two options. Now, we answer a mocking objection about the resurrection. Someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? You know, if you're a mind, of a mind that the resurrection is stupid, a dumb belief, You know, after all, science tells us that doesn't happen. And we know science is always right. Groan, groan. Then you might try to, you know, prove the resurrection wrong by asking, how's the body formed and what does it look like? You might object that not even God can take a dead body and make it into a living body. While you believe that evolution can take nothing in making it into a living body. Why do you believe like that? So Paul gives some illustrations. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps a wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So gardeners out there, 
delight in this illustration. Follow me here now. We know natural processes that God has designed, like garden seeds turning into garden plants with fruit on them, with their seed inside of them to do it again the next year. We know about pine cones with the seeds in them that turn into what? Pine trees that produce more pine cones. They have all that genetic information inside of of that thing. We know about caterpillars who go to cocoons who come out as moths or butterflies, right? There are many such strange designs in God's world where death comes into life. The cocoon seems to be, I mean, if you think of what's happening inside of that thing, I mean, as far as I understand, it's like a mush of chemical processes going on. I mean, it's strange. And you take a seed and you bury it in the ground, you know, R.I.P. The next thing you know, it's come out like this. Even the mustard seed, one of the smallest of all, it plant and makes a huge bush. There are these death-to-life things in God's world. Why should we be surprised that God has something like that for humanity? We are far more complex and valuable than caterpillars or corn seeds. So maybe, just maybe, something like this death-to-life motif through the grave applies to us as well. Well, we know it does. But have you ever thought about it like that before? We see illustrations of it all the time, and yet people disbelieve it, even though they studied in sixth grade science or whatever, the caterpillar and the cocoon and the moth and the butterfly and all of that. Beautiful thing that God has designed. This death to life situation applies to us too. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's also one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars, for one star differs from another star in its glory. Verse 42, we take the illustration and bring it down now to the application. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Just think of your own body as the uh, first of those pairs, okay? The, the corruption and the weakness and the dishonor and uh, natural, verse 44, it's sown in natural body. It's going to be raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's Genesis right there. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. So your body is like that seed. God will use it like a seed to produce something far greater. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. That's amazing. As, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so are also those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. You all today here who are present watching are bearing around, carrying around yourselves in a jar of clay, as it were, a a, a clay vessel. But 
by and by you will be carrying about yourself in a heavenly vessel. That's amazing. Now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. There has to be a change of form to, to fit the change in function. Your function now is an earthly function. Your function then will be a heavenly function. So your body that's outfitted for earthly stuff now has to be retrofitted, refitted, glorified, fixed up so that it will be ready for that kind of existence in heaven. And finally, in verses 51 to the end of the chapter, dead Christians are raised and living Christians are instantly transformed. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. That's a, that's a revelation of the rapture of the church in 55 or 56 A.D., that was an amazing truth for them to learn for the very first time. We kind of take it like, oh, yeah, I knew that. But that's amazing. It could be today. Maybe today my Lord will come for me. Maybe today my Savior I shall see. Maybe today from sin I shall be free. Maybe today, brother. Yeah. Death will be defeated, whether today or some other day. Verse 54, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great thing we have to look forward to. The universal grief of death will be banished and eternal joy will be the experience of those who long for it in Jesus Christ. Verse 58 tells us resurrection is true, so we must serve Christ and we can serve Christ confidently. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Not only is the resurrection of Jesus true, but the resurrection of us all is as well true. This is the meaning of the Resurrection Sunday that we are celebrating today. Let us give God gratitude for it and live accordingly. A year ago when I spoke on this topic, I, I put this in my notes. and I'll read it for you. But I want to ask a more practical question. How would your day-to-day -day life look different if you believed there is no resurrection? Or maybe I could ask it, how would your day-to-day -day life look if you believe there is a resurrection? Would there be a practical difference compared to how you live now? You say you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You say you believe that you're going to be raised. What practical difference does it make? Would you live differently if there were no resurrection? Putting it another way, does the resurrection of Christ have an impact on how you live Monday through Saturday? In what way can people tell that you believe in the resurrection of Christ? How does it change your conduct or outlook on everything? Do you handle trials differently than the world? Do you approach your work with a different perspective? 
or energy or delight? Do you approach living for the Lord with the resurrection mindset, which guarantees that our work will be fruitful for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you live that way, or does it really not make much difference to you? This doesn't, it's not here in the Bible just to take up space and make you feel good on Easter Sunday morning. This is for us to live by, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because the resurrection is true. It doesn't matter what your atheist friends say. They don't know what they're talking about. They've missed the key data points that you have. Now go and live that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the privilege to be here under the sound of your word and to be reading it and to be encouraged by it. And I pray that you would help us to live as if the resurrection does really make a difference in our lives. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.